little sneak peek at our Roots course. And when you think of this course, don't think of it like school. This is going to be way more fun. And you're really not being graded by anyone, but you're doing some self-assessment. You're saying, hey, look, being a Christian and growing as a Christian is important to me. It's important to my church because they want to ensure that each person is being discipled and growing in the Lord. And so, yeah, there's going to be some check-ins, some fruit checks along the way. But it's really about you saying with your community, maybe a couple of friends, maybe people in your family, whatever it is, um, brothers and sisters, along with your instructors to say, hey, am I growing in this area? Am I demonstrating fruit? Um, I love the description at the beginning of Roots. Oh, I'm getting to showcase all my tech skills this morning. Isn't this great? Those of you who know me know this could be a disaster. But it says this, Roots, these growth goals will give you confidence that you have the key elements of discipleship in place, ensuring years of future growth. So we got a team together um, last year of just Life Church folks and said, hey, what are those core things that we want every disciple at Life Church to know, um, to believe, to have in their heart, to be doing with their hands? And so these growth goals are kind of graded in three categories, head, heart, hands. And they um, are also looked at through the bio, through before God, in community, and on mission. And so there are 11 of them, and you can see them. Um, discipleship, key terms and concepts, the gospel, Jesus Christ, grace. These are all really big, big monster things that we want everybody to know. And we're going to be teaching on each of them a little bit, doing some fun activities with each of them, but then also um, doing a fruit check. Because some of you have been Christians for a long time, and you're going to be able to pretty much do fruit check in each one of these growth goals and say, yep, I've got it. And that's great. That's exactly what we want. We don't expect everybody to be at a beginner level. And as far as fruit goes, let me just demonstrate this with um, number nine, prayer practices. We said as we got together as a team of people, one of, the, one of the growth goals that we have for every disciple, every person that comes into Life Church is we said, a disciple practices prayer as a basic lifestyle using different methods of prayer. We want that to be true about all of us as disciples. And um, we're going to cheat and go straight to the fruit check. And, and so this is just a, one way to see, like, hey, am I demonstrating fruit in this area or not? Uh-oh, we've got issues. Why did I get a little small box here, Garrett? Thank you, Wade. This didn't happen. Okay, perfect. Bingo. Um, so there's a fruit check. And it says here, take a few minutes to think about if you're bearing fruit in this growth goal. Below, put a check mark next to the fruit indicators that you're pretty sure are true of you. And so you'll go through and do this yourself. Like I said, you're not being graded on this. There's no pass or fail. This is something you're going to grow in your whole life. Obviously, I'm still growing in prayer um, majorly. I'm always asking people, how do you pray? How do you, how do you grow deeper in that part of your life? But you want to go through these and see... Are any of these true about me? And if you have one, we think that's awesome. That's our goal is that you just have one. But if you have two, even better. And three, hey, that's fantastic. So look at the first one. Can use three or more different types of methods of prayer. Example of the Lord's Prayer. Praise and thanksgiving. Petition and intercession. Praying scripture. Centering prayer. Praying in tongues. Some of you are like, I didn't know there was this many kinds of prayer. There are. There's lots of different kinds of prayer. And so maybe um, that's true about you. Maybe not. Um, secondly, here's another fruit can pray comfortably with other Christians. How many of you have said, man, I like to pray. I like to be honest with the Lord, but I just get really weird and nervous praying in front of other Christians. A lot of people like that. 
Totally get that. We want to help you become comfortable with that. We want to be blessed by your prayer life too. Um, thirdly, can keep a prayer journal that demonstrates regular prayer time and keeps track of insights from God during prayer, as well as specific prayer requests and answered prayer. It's one of the biggest disciplines I've used in my prayer life is a prayer journal, writing out my thoughts. Sometimes I don't even know I think something until I tell God that I think that. But if you just have one of those fruits, we say, awesome, great. That's what we're looking for. You're bearing some fruit in this life. You'll grow your whole life. But in the roots course, we're just hoping that you have one fruit or that you can start working towards having one fruit by the end of this course. If you have two, if you have three, hey, you're an overachiever. Great. That's fantastic. But that's a little sneak peek at what we'll be doing. So we'll be learning together, doing some discussions, doing some fun activities, and then checking for some fruit and figuring out how are we going to move forward to developing some fruit in each one of these 11 growth goals. So it is six weeks. So most weeks we'll tackle two growth goals. And um, like I said, you'll be fed. It's going to be a lot of fun. You don't want to miss it. 20 people get to sign up. So um, be looking for that in the e-blast. Highly encourage it. It's way better than football. If you're planning on watching football in the next several weeks, just cancel your plans. Um, Roots is where it's at, all right? Uh, With that, Tinley's going to come up and read the scripture. Today's scripture is Exodus 32, verses 7 through 14. And the Lord said to Moses... Go down, for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Thank you, Tenley. Thank you, Pastor Dave and, and all the elders getting to share this responsibility of preaching. It's always an honor. I'm Nathan Hitchcock. I'm one of the elders here at Life Church. And let me ask you a question here as we begin. What's a type of music that you heard somebody didn't like and you tried to change their mind about it? Can you think of something? Turn to somebody next to you. Tell them what that was. You try to change somebody's mind. Okay, now tell the person, how did that go? Did you convince the person? And they came back. They're like, oh, I love rap rock now. 
No? No? How do you change somebody's mind? <laughs> How do you change God's mind? Well, that's not easy. He is fixed in his character and his purposes. You might say that God has had a long time to think about what he likes. He's even had eternity to think about this. He knows what he likes and doesn't like. So how do you change God's mind? Well, theologians go so far as to say that God doesn't change. He is immutable. Immutable. You, you don't change when you're immutable. And in most of the Bible, this is exactly what gets emphasized, that God is immutable. He doesn't change. There's an unchanging nature. It's like we sang earlier, there is no shadow of turning in thee. We humans may waffle, but God doesn't. God is constant. Like Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent and yet, a number of times in the Bible, it says that God relented, that he turned. And even 13 times by my count, it says that God repented. What do you do with that? Well, right off the bat, we got to say that God's repentance, divine repentance is not like human repentance. Because when we repent, we turn from sin. We were sinning, then we're not sinning. That's not true with God. God doesn't sin. And yet we have to make some sense of these passages when it says God repented or he relented or he turned. He changed in some way. What is going on? And our passage in Exodus 32 today is one of those cases. And you do wonder what in the world would change God's mind. And specifically, what in the world would change God's mind from blessing you? Because here's the thing, God is crazy about you. Do you know this? He loves you so much. He thinks about you all the time. He has invested so much in you. He wants to shower you with blessings and gifts and his presence. So if God does change his mind about blessing you, what would dare change his mind about that? And the Bible has kind of a stark answer to it. There is one thing. Idolatry. Idolatry drives God nuts. So many other sins there. God says, mm -hmm, you know, he's okay. It hurts, but, but idolatry. And it's kind of hard for us to understand why God would be so worked up about, like, using images and worship or some kind of, you know, graven image. Like, what's the big deal? God? So let me tell you a modern parable. Let's see how this goes. The kingdom of heaven is like a couple named Theo and Izzy who were engaged to be married. Like so many couples, they are all affection, fawning over each other, unable to separate for more than 10 seconds at a time. I love you. I love you more. Blah, it's gross. <laughs> and as engaged persons are known to do, they made all sorts of promises to each other well before their wedding day. They were committed. As it happened, they decided they would live in a different state after the wedding. So Theo went ahead to prepare a house for them. He left town and began arranging their new home, designing the sweetest little place, making sure every detail was just right. When Theo came back to town, he surprised Izzy by showing up at her apartment. She was shocked to see him. 
But he was even more shocked because when he went in her apartment, he saw a man. (laughs) I'll pay you later, kid. There appeared to be a man in Izzy's apartment. But upon closer inspection, Theo realized, oh, it was just a robot. But then he took a closer look. Wait, is this a romance robot? Yeah, Izzy replied. It's the new 6000 series model. I got it customized. Theo felt his temperature rising. Why did you get a romance robot? Well, you were gone a long time, said Izzy. It was just there to keep me company while you were gone. Don't don't be upset. I was thinking of you the whole time. It reminds me of you. Theo took a good look at the plastic-covered machine. What are you talking about? It looks more like your ex-boyfriend. And there was uncomfortable silence. You're not having sex with it, are you? Asked Theo, beginning to tremble with rage. Well, what was I supposed to do, said Izzy. I have needs. I got lonely but I was thinking of you every time, I swear. Theo pulled the plug from the wall and began thinking dark, dark thoughts. And if this parable sounds like utter fiction to you, you need to understand that this tech is coming. I guarantee you this tech is coming. A wicked and perverse generation will ensure that happens. It'll come to market. But don't think about that. That's not what you need to worry about here. I want you to think about how did Theo feel How would you feel if you were in Theo's place? What's the big deal? What's a big deal? And this gives us a window into God's feelings when he caught Israel with the golden calf. And this morning, I want to ask a provocative question. How do you change God's mind? Because there is a category of sin that threatens your relationship with God more than anything else threatening to change his mind. It's idolatry. But the Bible also tells us how to change God's mind back. And we'll get to that good news. Please, if you are listening to this sermon right now online or you're here, please stick through to the end of the message here because I want you to walk away with the good news. But we have to go through the valley first, okay? Turn to that passage with me, Exodus chapter 32. Let's take a closer look at this. There's some context you should understand. Israel is out of Egypt, but they're in the desert. And they're there with their leader, Moses. And Moses has given the law. God has given the law through Moses. But then God wants to speak with Moses again. So actually, back in chapter 24, it says that Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God. And he meets with God for 40 days. And during this time, God is blessing Moses and going to bless the people. He is going to give Moses an autographed copy of the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. It's going to be cool. But the biggest thing is this. God is going to spell out in detail what the tabernacle is supposed to look like and how the priesthood is supposed to work, the priests who run the tabernacle. And the important thing here to understand is that the tabernacle is the place where God wanted to meet with his people. The tabernacle was supposed to be that place of relationship. You can always find me here, God's going to say. Come to this tent, this gorgeous tent. Every detail is right in place, and we can be in relationship here. That's what God is doing with Moses. 
for 40 days, and that's over chapters 25 through 31. But here we are in chapter 32, and the people are not actually doing any kind of thing to prepare for a relationship with Yahweh, their God. They're doing quite the opposite. The people have been setting up a graven image. If you look at verse 1 in chapter 32, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who was the high priest, and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. They want to make gods. They want to make an image of their God. And so we're told that Aaron gives in, and he collects gold earrings from the women and the children, and he molds all of it, melts it down, and forms a golden bowl, a golden calf. And you can see how the people respond to this. They are thrilled. They don't feel repentant at all. They're thrilled. Look at verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You may have a translation that says, this is your God, singular, O Israel. Because uh, the word is Elohim. It can actually be translated in the singular God or God's. But one way or the other, the Israelites are like, ooh, now we can see our God. Very comforted by this. Now now we can actually make an image of our God or our gods. And we understand this God drew us out of Egypt, great. But but now we can see our God. Now we can funnel our worship to God through this thing. Now it's kind of guaranteed worship. And this is what the Bible calls an idol. What is an idol? An idol. It's when you take worship into your own hands and you make a graven image. You make something earthly that becomes the conduit for your worship. God's the one who dictates how worship happens. But when you take worship into your own hands and you create something and say, I'm going to worship through this thing, this image or, or this crystal or, or, or this religious artifact, and that's where my worship goes through because, then I, because that thing is representing God and is God to me. That's an idol. And this, of course, is breaking one of the key commandments. It's actually the second commandment in the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Don't make an image. If you're going to worship this God, you don't worship him like those other gods. You worship this God, not with those images. Don't use them. It shouldn't look like any creaturely thing. Because when you use that kind of creaturely thing, you're not actually worshiping him. You're just pissing God off. And God is furious. He's furious. Look, and this gets to our passage that was read. Look what he says to Moses. This is verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. And I know how angry God is in this verse because my parents, every once in a while, would get that angry. When I really screwed up as a kid, and I, there were a few golden times of that, uh, they, they, they would say, one would say to the other, your child just did, would you believe what your son just did? Your son. <laughs> you know, like they're threatening, disowning me. That's what parents say when they get really angry. But this is not some kind of vapid threat. No. God's mind is changing. 
Look at verse 10. He says to Moses, now therefore leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. Yahweh is going to consume the people in his wrath. That means he's going to kill them all. It means he's going to start over with a new Israel through the line of Moses. And you understand here, God is not breaking his covenant per se. He just said that he was going to make a great nation out of Abraham. So if he wants to just sort of, you know, sift it all down to one man and start over, uh, God, God will find a way to keep his promise with that covenant. But it's pretty, oh, it's a pretty gruesome way of doing it. God killing everyone beside Moses and starting over? That would be a terrifying twist in the covenant story. But God is that angry. How do you change God's mind to make him that angry? The Bible tells us idolatry. And that should make us shudder that there is something that would so rattle God. If you dare to descend with me even further, I want you to think about a few factors that go into idolatry. There's a few facets that are wrapped up with idolatry. And it gets spelled out in this passage, so I think we have to go there. How do you change God's mind? <laughs> let, me, let me just speak in a really kind of um, awful way. If you want to change God's mind for the worst, here, here's how you do it. Here's the formula. Number one, corrupt your worship. We've been talking about this. Corrupt your worship. If you really want to get God angry, so angry that he would remove his blessing from you, tell God that you'll worship him in whatever way you please. God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's not what the Israelites do. And he says there in verse 7, they have corrupted themselves. With their worship, they have corrupted themselves. That, that Hebrew word corrupt, shakat, suggests ruin or decay. Can you kind of imagine that's just stinking? They took something natural, the Israelites did, something they found in themselves or in the world, and they manufactured a graven image, and then they worshipped it as their God. They know the whole thing's false, right? I mean, they made their God. They made the idol, and yet they still worship it. They know it's patterned after them, but they don't care. They welcome the corruption of their worship. It's probably because a calf would have been familiar to them. If you go back to this time, you find that other religions were using calves, various animals, but including bulls. Uh, they were fertility images. We actually even have uh, images of Baal, who is the sky god, supposedly, in, you know, in the regions around there. And Baal would sit or stand on a bull. And you can kind of see how this would comfort the people then. If you have a bull, a golden calf, it must mean that God, Baal, is like riding on top of it. Baal's near because, look, the, the bull's right there. It's like, oh, this really feels good to us. Yeah, it feels right. I mean, it's unnatural, but it's right because, look, all the other religions are doing it. All the other nations are doing it. They knew it was a rotten way to worship Yahweh, but they did it anyway. They were essentially telling their God, we get to worship you however we please. And that right there is corrupt worship. But God says, you're not just corrupting worship, you're corrupting yourselves. It's horrifying. It's like what Psalm 115, 8 says, those who make idols become like them, 
so do all who trust in them. Have you ever thought of that? The thing you worship, you actually become like? So we have a dog named Finn. Finny um, loves to kill things if she can. And then what's even grosser is that she won't eat it. She'll just let it rot there for a while. And then, why do dogs do this? She will go and roll in the dead animal. Have you ever known a dog that does this? And we know when she's done this because, like, there's, like, a little brown smear on her back or whatever. And she comes in about 10 feet away. You're like, oh, Stay away, dog. Do not let her inside. She needs a bath right now, and it's really gross. Why she does this, don't really know. But this is what happens when you get involved in idolatry. You come before God, and God is like, oh, you have corrupted yourself. It's not just gross. Now you smell like that gross thing you've been participating in. That was the Israelites. They rolled in their nasty, corrupt worship. Notice that there was nothing that corrupted them. They corrupted themselves. So that's how you get God to change his mind. Just corrupt yourself. Corrupt your worship. Pushing this further, how do you change God's mind? Well, number two, rebel against God's word. Rebel against God's word. Say to God, yep, I hear you, but whatever Because this is what Israel did. They turned to an image instead of clinging to God's word. They just received God's word. They'd received the law. And yet, verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. The Israelites turned from the way. They're rebels. They are sinning intentionally. Uh, my nephew Ethan one time was making cookie dough with his father. And they were making chocolate chip cookie dough. And um, and then my, my, my brother-in-law, Caleb, got a phone call. He had to go, and he said, Ethan, don't eat the cookie dough. And, and when he came back in, Ethan had not one, but two fistfuls of cookie dough. And he said, Ethan, stop. And Ethan looked at his father and went, oh, and just packed his mouth full. You know, and that's funny. <coughs> What's not funny is when God tells us, stop, and yet we still get into that relationship where God says to us, stop doing that to the poor and the immigrant and the people that I love, and instead we build a whole political philosophy around it. God says to us, no, please don't do that, and we find some way to destroy our own lives. There's some clear words in Scripture. I know there's some difficult passages. There's some difficult commands, but there's a lot of clear stuff in there. And there are times when we just start to sin intentionally. We do it in the face of God. And if you look in the law, you find there's actually different classes of sin. I mean, all sin is sin in some sense, but there's unintentional sin and intentional sin. And you'll find this sometimes that you've been breaking God's law. You didn't even know it, and somebody will point it out to you and just repent and, and apologize. That's fine. Um, but there's some intentional sin that's mentioned, and the Bible even speaks like in Numbers 15.30 that there's a sinning with a high hand when you revile the Lord. And it says that person's supposed to be cut off. Well, idolatry is that way. When you make an idol and you cling to it, 
And you say, God, I like this idol better than you, and I'm disobeying your word openly. You are risking changing God's mind. Here's the third way to change God's mind. God's mind doesn't change easily, but refuse to change. And this really kind of gets down to the heart of it. Um, If you want to change God's mind about you, then you refuse to change. Get stubborn. Become, look at verse 9, stiff-necked. That's what this people has become, stiff-necked. In Hosea 4, verse 16, it says, Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? He wants to feed you like sheep. He wants to take you to places where you're well-fed. Um, but if you act like a, like a stiff-necked cow, how is that going to happen? How are you going to get fed? How are you going to get blessed? And, and sadly, much of the Old Testament is dedicated to prophecies against stiff-necked Israel, both northern kingdom and southern kingdom, because they're idolatry addicts. They keep on making images. They keep on making statues. They keep on, when they're not creating idols, they make high places, which are the hills. They look to the hills around them. They say, hey, let's set up an altar over there, not at the tabernacle, not at the temple, ultimately. Oh, let's, just, let's, just, let's just go set up a little mini temple wherever we want, which is kind of bordering on idolatry. And rarely does Israel manage to shake off their addiction. And they refuse to change. And that's scary stuff. Um, It's scary stuff when people refuse to change at all. You know this, by the way. Um, How many sins are there at Life Church that you can get excommunicated for? What I mean is, like, like, what would you have to do? What sin would you have to commit to get kicked out of Life Church? Do you know there's only one sin? Correct me if I'm wrong here. There's only one sin that gets you kicked out of Life Church as a covenant member, and that is unrepentance. If somebody comes to you and says, brother, sister, you need to confront this thing in your life, and you say no, and then somebody else comes to you and, and says, really, you need to get back with God in this way, and you say, meh. And then the whole church, like the leadership comes to you, even the whole church comes to you, and you still say, whatever, I'm never going to change, not going to change. That's, that's when it happens. That, that, that's when you can't be part of the body anymore. But that's the only thing. We believe in discipline here at Life Church because we believe that's the loving thing to do. We love you. We're trying to love each other and be good to each other through discipline. But that's it. That's, that's the only super serious thing. With idolatry, unfortunately, there's corruption and rebellion and stubbornness. It's a nasty addiction. It doesn't go well. And God's mind, when he starts to see that kind of idolatry, it starts to change, and he goes to dark places. Now, some of you right now are feeling nervous, even scared about this. Um, I do want to say to you, if you feel unnerved by this in any sense, that's, that's a good sign here. It means that you're actually not in that place of just stubbornness. But I also want to speak to you here um, that I don't want you to stay in that place. I don't think God wants you to be in that place. In fact, I would ask you, would you stand up for a second? Everybody stand up. 
and, and do this, go ahead and like twist, like kind of look, look behind you. Don't hurt yourself. Just look, look behind you. Okay, so you twist. Okay, now, now go back. Is it easier to twist behind you or is it easier to come back? <laughs> yeah, right, like, oh, oh. Okay, sit down. Because I want you to know this morning, I think God wants you to know that, yes, his mind can be turned. His feelings can absolutely be hurt. He can be horrified at your sin, but it is always easier to come back. Because he is the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Hey, let's start moving towards good news here. Praise the Lord. It doesn't leave us in that really awful place. Israel's not left in that awful place. Check this out. You can change God's mind back. God can, has, can have his mind changed back. And it gives us uh, an anatomy of this too. Spells out some facets about how God's mind gets changed back. This is so cool. Check this out. Um, number one, you want to change God's mind? Remind God of his story. If you want to change God's mind back, remind him of his story. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Moses appeals to God's own storyline. This is the story God has been telling. It's a story of grace to a lowly people who are delivered from a slave-holding empire, and against all odds, they're led into the promised land. That is God's preferred narrative. It's the one where God's mighty works are featured in the biggest underdog story of all time. Like, you don't want to mess up that story. Like, it's like a cut scene from Rudy, where Rudy, like, you know, gets run over by a car at the end. Like, no, this is not how it works. Come on. It can't work that way. So you remind God of his works. You remind him of his story. Here's the second thing that Moses does that shows us how you changed God's mind back. You remind God of his reputation. Remind him of his story, but remind him of his reputation too. Verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out? To kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Notice what Moses is doing here. He appeals to God's honor. Yahweh, you won't receive the reverence of the nations if you do this. The Egyptians will hear about this and snicker. All the other nations who have seen your great power and your great might will go, well, that's weird. He, he like delivered them only to kill them. And God's name will not be hallowed. God will lose his reputation as the mighty God of grace. And here's a third way that Moses changes God's mind back. Remind God of his covenant. This, this is the key thing. Remind God of his covenant. I was noticing my wedding ring while I was making this sermon. I'm like, oh, yeah. It's supposed to be a reminder to me, but it's also supposed to be a reminder to Christina because she gave me this ring. In some ways, this is her ring. She covenanted with me. So, so this is a good reminder. Oh, yeah, that's the promises I made to her, but actually it's the promises she made to me. And when I see her ring, it reminds me of the promises I made to her. 
Look at verse 13. This is what Moses does for God. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I've promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. He says, God, you promised. Remember. Remember your promise. You know, and here's the thing. Moses can't do this. You can't do this. You can't go to God and appeal to some kind of higher principle than God. You can't go to God and say, God, this is what justice is. You have to do this just thing. It doesn't work. You can't go to God and say, God, this, this, I know exactly what love is. I know exactly what this higher principle is, and you have to appeal to this thing. It doesn't exactly work that way because God is the highest. But what you can do is you can appeal to his own promise. You can say, God, you said this, right? Notice the use of plural nouns in Moses' argument. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. You said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land I've promised I will give to your offspring and they, they shall inherit forever. You know, he's speaking in plural. God, you don't really want to kill everybody and start over with me, do you? That's, that's an unnatural thing. Rather, the natural reading of your own promise, the natural interpretation of your own promise is blessing multiple people. Covenant is the strongest argument of all in the face of great sin. And look at verse 14. It works. And the Lord relented from his disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. He changed his mind through the intercession God's mind was changed back. What's here for you? For some of you, um, the right application is this. You need to repent. You've been following some other religion. You've been tinkering with something else that is not of God. You need to repent. He, he doesn't want to see you enter that destruction. He doesn't want to see you corrupt yourself. Repent. Turn. We all have to do it. Whatever that thing is, especially if it is wrapped up in some kind of idolatry. Don't mess around with it. It's garbage. It is toxic to your relationship with God. By all means, do not allow yourself to become corrupt, rebellious, and stubborn. And, and maybe this morning you've learned something about prayer. Maybe one of your takeaways is like, oh, yeah, that's the power of intercession. I can intercede. Some of you who are working on prayer, like Pastor Dave was talking about, that's also a thing you can do. You can intercede like Moses. Think about praying that way when you pray for others. God, remember your promise. Whatever your takeaway is this morning, friends, I, I, I pray you will take this away. A fresh appreciation for the person who goes to bat for you. 
you realize you have a lot of friends in this life. You have a lot of people who are going to bat for you, but there's one who rises above all, an intercessor who is even greater than Moses. His name is Jesus. Jesus does what Moses did. And he does it much bigger on a much grander scale and much more effectively. Because the Bible is absolutely clear about this. You do not have to worry about losing your salvation. Listen, you do not have to worry about losing your salvation if you're saved. You do not have to worry about losing your place before God. You do not have to lose your status as a child of God because of Jesus. Because if you put your faith in Jesus, he will make sure that God the Father sees you that way. Jesus is your guarantee that the wrath of God will never touch you. He is the true intercessor. Hebrews 7 says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know this, God never wanted to turn away from you. So even before you came to be, even before your first sinful thought, God purposed that he would send his son. God purposed that he himself would come down, his very own essence here on earth, that he would become a child, that he would grow up into this man who taught us about the kingdom. He would show us the way to God. He would die on a cross, this Jesus. Shed his own blood to make sure that no sin ever separated you from God and took away all your sins. And on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead because Jesus wanted to be alive forever to make sure that he could intercede for you so that day and night, for eternity, he would always be able to stand before the Father on your behalf. And the Bible says he ascended into heaven after 40 days of resurrection appearances. He ascended into heaven. And what does he do there in heaven? He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's there the whole time. So whenever you sin and you would bring destruction upon yourself, the son says to the father, Father, forgive them. And whenever you are stubborn and recalcitrant and you don't want to be with God, Jesus says, Father, remember Remember what I did for that child. Because of Jesus, a funny thing happens in heaven when you sin. And when you sin here on earth, even make an idol, you distort yourself, right? You start to look like the idol. It's just gross. It's wrong. But in heaven, that's not how it happens. In heaven, the Father doesn't look at you and your distortion. He doesn't look at you first. He looks at his son first. And he listens to the son, and then he looks at you. And something remarkable happens. You don't look like your idol distorted self to God. You look like Jesus. And that, that is something that will never change. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. We believe you. And Jesus, we just have this fresh appreciation for you. 
Thank you for going to bat for us. Thank you for defending us. Thank you for standing in for us when we couldn't help ourselves. Thank you, Jesus.